TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary. For everyone, manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. I just said to her, oh, what would happen if someone hurt me or someone did something to me? And she was like, well, we would all be there. And I was like, no, you wouldn't. And she was like, no, we would. Because like, even if we don't all get on, we're family. And I was like, oh, that's going to be a novel. That's what I have to do. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Candace Cardi-Williams discusses her new novel about half-siblings. So many people have them, and it's such an interesting and delicate and often unsuccessful relationship. Debbie has ceded the microphone this week to a substitute host, the one and only Roxanne Gay. Hi, I'm Jake Shears, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, Queer the Music, that uncovers the anthems that have dominated dance floors and shaped queer lives. I'll be unpacking a different track each episode to discover the fascinating stories and backgrounds to each tune with the help of my brilliant guests. I had been advised by a media trainer to not come out. Love to see every kind of person say, sucking on my titties, because we all have titties. We got pelted, cups of water, tubes of toothpaste. That's Queer the Music with me, Jake Shears. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A few short years ago, Candace Carty-Williams came out with her debut novel, Queenie, about a young Jamaican-British woman in London trying to get her life together after a bad breakup. It's funny and sharp and deeply felt, and one of those books that makes you think this woman is one hell of a storyteller. Well, we're lucky because now she's back with her second novel, People Person, and it is the best book I've read all year. The novel follows the Pennington family, five siblings really, who have the same itinerant father who has been mostly absent from their lives. 
When Dimple Pennington runs into something of a crisis with her boyfriend, she turns to the family she hasn't seen in years. And now, as adults, the siblings reconnect and help Dimple solve the biggest problem in her life. And in doing so, they find that the bonds between them are stronger than they could have ever imagined. I am so excited to speak today with Candace about her novels, her work in publishing, and where she goes from here. Candace Carty-Williams, welcome to Design Matters. Roxanne Gay, thank you very much for having me. I am so pleased to see you again. We first met in London with the Black Girls Book Club. Yes. I'm curious, you've said in a number of interviews that you came to writing late and never really thought of yourself as a writer when you were younger. And I'm wondering, what was that moment that made writing possible for you where you thought, actually, I might be a writer and I can do this? Huh. Is that day coming yet? Yeah, I don't know. It's still maybe <laughs> not there. Um, but you know what? It was it was working in publishing and and seeing so many books coming through, but none that I could relate to really, um, and finding that really hard. And honestly, writing Queenie was me being like, let me give it a go. Uh, let me see. I like stories. I like to tell stories. I like to hear stories. Uh, so maybe if I try one for myself. It could be something. Writer is still something that I'm kind of grappling with. I get imposter syndrome. I suffer from it badly um, all the time. But I think it was just me being like, you got something to say. How do you go from I have something to say to a novel? Because I know that you wrote a lot of the novel at Jojo Moyes's Country House, which Mm. sounds made up when you say it out loud. What was it about that space that opened those floodgates? Um, I think when I go back to sort of this imposter syndrome thing, I had I'd won this this place on this retreat and I borrowed my friend's car because I didn't have a car and I drove that, I bombed it down the motorway. And when I got there, I just knew that I had to earn my place. Mm. And I was like, you can't leave without having done something. And it's not that Jojo was ever going to come in and be like, how much have you done? Mm -hmm. But I was like, you owe it to yourself and you owe it kind of to being in the space to produce something from that. And so when I got in, I locked myself in there and... I wrote maybe 8,000 words, I think, on the first night because I was like, you have to do this. You have to do this because also Mm. you don't have the space otherwise. London is very loud. London is very busy. And I'm one of those people that always, I really try and be sort of, you know, have gratitude about like being in a space that isn't, isn't mine or in a space that's kind of been given to me. And so, yeah, it was just being very much like, earn this now. What does your writing process look like when you finally sit down? And I ask that because every time I ask a writer, you know, how do you do it? Every writer Mm. has a different answer. And I even, you know, sometimes can't even articulate how I do it. I'm like, I sit down and most of the time I mess around on the internet, but then Mm -hmm. once in a while, some words show up. So what does that look like for you? Uh, It's in the middle of the night Mm. so that I can't be distracted by the internet or by people. And it's very intense. And so I will sit and I will do a shift of writing for maybe eight hours. And then I will look up and be like, oh, okay, yeah, you're still here. You're still fine. Um, And I won't have done anything. I might have drunk some water. um, And then I tend to have a cigarette at the end to punctuate the session. So I know that I'm done. But I don't do I'm a very weird sort of purist. And then I feel quite sick. um, Mm -hmm. And I feel kind of like giddy. And then I have to sort of not do any writing again for another maybe three days. 
through four oh, days. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Just to recover. I need to start. I'm good at giving myself recovery time because if I try and do it again the next day, my head will explode. You know, it's interesting because I do try to write every day, but my best writing mm. and I will say all of my books were written in very compressed amounts of time and for many, many hours a day. I wrote my first novel, An Untamed State, Mm. writing up to 10 hours a day during a summer Wow! because I knew this was the only unstructured time I was going to have before a new semester started. Mm. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and I was just deeply within the story. Yeah. And so it's really wonderful to hear that another writer has a similar process where sometimes you just hit the ground running. And I'm a night writer as well. Yeah, I need everything to be, I need the house to be quiet. I need the animals to be quiet. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I don't do well with distraction. Oh, I do. So I need a lot of noise. I need a lot of oh, music. Really? I watch I can... television, I will say. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, no, no, yeah. something in the background, but I need to... Uh, I'm really funny with quiet. So I'm in quiet right now while I talk to you and I'm very, I'm, I'm like, what's that? What's that noise? What's that? Who's over there? <laughs> and so like, as soon as we finish, I will be, put, I brought my speaker with me on this book tour so I can Excellent. have something all the time. Uh, but I love distraction because I think I've just got quite a jumpy fast mind and I think mm-hmm. that feeds into it. What kind of music is best for you to write to? Uh, at the moment, so it's usually been sort of uh, UK rap, lots of grime, but at the moment it's soundtracks. So mm-hmm. uh, Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, that's a firm favourite. West Side Story, firm favourite. Dreamgirls, another mm. great one. And also there's, oh my gosh, Moulin Rouge, that one. That's a very good one. So at the moment, lots of film soundtracks. And I love musicals. I love musicals so much. And so it's like, okay, yeah, carry the energy of a musical, all the camp, all the loud, all the excitement, and put it into the work, if that makes sense. Yes, I love musicals. I I love any situation where people might spontaneously break into song (laughs) and dance and really make important life decisions through lyrics. Like, yes, give me more of that. And Dreamgirls is... Oh, top 10 show. So good. Oh, absolutely. Now, Queenie received such a beautiful reception. And mm. I know that one of the things that motivated you to write Queenie was reading all of these books while working in publishing and not being able to connect to many of them, not seeing anything resembling your life on the page. And now you've been able to give that to Black women. And so what has been your favorite moment of having a book like Queenie out in the world and of course now people person thank you it feels like a privilege first of all like that is an incredible thing to me and actually I really love being part of something that is a connector of people um that's super important to me but I get so many people who just tell me that Queenie made them feel less lonely and that's the thing that's the most important to me because I wrote it because I was feeling so lonely and when I say that I really want it I had something to say I just felt so sad always in myself in trying to be this girl this black girl who was perfect who had her shit together who was really smart who was really good at doing her hair who like had the right skin tone who had the right nails who had all of this stuff and who dated properly and behaved properly and I was like I can't be I can't be alone in in always feeling this and so whenever I meet somebody who is like I'm the kind of girl that Queenie is I'm always like okay good because you know she's found her people and that's important that's that's me and also when when men uh, uh, read it is always really interesting to me and what their take homes are but it's always when it's yeah it's always when when women are like yeah I I recognize her absolutely and not just her but sometimes her Mm mum I like that connection 
it was Queenie when I read it. I was like, oh, I love that it was a story about a young black woman who didn't have it all together, yeah. who was absolutely a mess, who was dealing with anxiety and needing to work on mental health. And mm. and then also like just having a sort of precarious living situation, which so many of us have in our 20s and 30s. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I, I love that you put that book into the world. I'm curious, how do you measure success as a writer? How do you feel like, yes, I've done good and I've made it? Or do you feel successful? Do I feel successful? It's interesting. I, I don't know what the measure is. I'm not interested really in in money as a metric. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really interested in social media following as a metric. I just like to, if anyone goes on my social media, I just sort of post some stuff very irregularly and my stories are just me doing stupid shit. So it's never, like, I don't have a curated brand. I'm not really interested in being that sort of person. I think it's knowing that someone has connected to my work, which kind of takes us back to what we were talking about before. But that's the thing for me that makes me feel like I'm important and feel like I can talk to someone because so much of my life, just as a person, is always trying to find a way to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And I think having sort of like, you know, two books now where people can come and say to me, oh, you've captured what I have gone through and I didn't know who to talk to about it. I didn't even know I needed to talk to about it. That's how I measure, I guess, what success is to me. It's having found a connection. Mm-hmm. Those connections can be so important. I read a piece in The Guardian, and you talked about how Queenie was written about Blackness in response to whiteness, but your second book was a book just about Black people. Mm. How have people responded to that difference in focus? And what are you really proud of in People Person and how you grew as a writer between Queenie and People Person? Thank you. I've been waiting for someone to ask that. I've had a very interesting response to that, um, which I recognised quite early on. So I had lots of reviewers, and all white ones actually, say it's not Queenie, and it's like, well, well, yes, because it's a different. Well, of course not. Yeah. It's a different work. <laughs> Funny um, how that works. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And so I think that there is something interesting that I'm finding, and when I see plays and when I watch films, there is something about whiteness that is still like whiteness has to be centered even if it's negatively because it's like at least you still recognize that I'm here and so the lack of that in people person I think has really flummoxed people you know there's not if there's if there's not even a lens being held up to me then what's the point and I Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting so lots of people who were like well where are the white people and I had a, a journalist a white journalist ask me why I had othered the the white people in the in the novel and people person and I was like in what way do you mean and she was like well they're just the other and I was like I honestly don't know what you mean I was like I'm not being rude I just don't know what 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 that what that is and she was like well you know you know the woman in it you know she's described as a white woman and I was like well how 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 would you describe yourself and she's like well woman and I was like well that's the issue and so it's that interesting thing of being like unless I'm writing about whiteness in a way that even is negative, positive, anything, unless I'm signposting whiteness as something that is there, that is disruptive, then no one really understands what I'm doing. And that's really interesting. That is interesting. And it's always revealing when you press white journalists Mm, and readers mm, 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 about mm, mm. their inherent biases, about who is the center of a narrative universe. Yeah. 
because it reveals time and time again that what they're really saying is that white people are the center of the universe. So Mm -hmm. I'm a woman, but you're a black woman. Your Mm -hmm. womanhood is qualified by your race. How do you have the, I don't know what the word is. It's not courage, but how do you hold that line with journalists and actually ask the questions or push back on the questions so that they have to confront that sort of bias that they would normally be allowed to skate away with? I think I try not to, you know, do this whole, like, I'm teaching people things because I'm not Mm -hmm. necessarily interested in that as like a sort of function of survival and living. But I definitely think you need to be asked this question and I think I'm going to ask it in a much nicer way than someone else is going to. Mm. And so it's kind of just being patient. And I've never been rude to a journalist, though I have had a lot of reason to be. But I've never been, not because I'm afraid of, um, I'm just, I just don't like being rude to people. It's, I don't think it's very mm-hmm. nice. But in this, it's kind of like, yeah, I just want you to have a think about what that is. And in a, in a, in a space that is safe and in a space that I'm, you know, I'm interested. And I am interested, typically. It's not me being like, oh, I've caught you out. It's me being like, how did we get here? And how did you get here? And how did you feel that this was appropriate to ask me or talk to me about, you know? That's such a good question of how did you get here? And I'm also interested in the question of where do you go from here with this Mm. new information or new perspective? And, you know, as journalism goes, it's rare that we get to follow up with journalists who are interviewing us. But Mm -hmm. I often think, like, where are you going to go from here? Is this just going to be an awkward blip on your radar? Or is this going to be a moment where you have actually learned something? You know, in people person... One of my favorite things is that there really weren't any white people and it was refreshing. And I didn't realize it until I got to the end and I realized, wow, Mm -hmm. this was just about black people in a black community. Mm -hmm. And even um, one of the siblings has a white parent. And even then, we barely see her. She only pops up at the end when everyone comes together for something. I would love to know the origin story of People Person because I, I loved this book so much. I just loved it. And I rarely say that about a book because, I, I mean, there are a lot of okay books. But <laughs> this was just so warm and so wonderful. And the siblings, uh, yeah, tell me about the origin story of People Person. Thank you so much. So that really that that means everything, as you know. Um, so I I was in I was I was in lockdown. Paint a picture. I was in lockdown. I was living by myself um, in a one bedroom flat, and I was incredibly lonely. Very very lonely all the time. Obviously, as many people were, mm. and um, I spent a lot of time on the phone to various people, as we all did, because there was nothing to do. And I spoke to one of my big sisters. So my dad has nine children in total. My mum has two. And there are various step-siblings here, there and everywhere. Um, but I spoke to the eldest of my dad's children, um, with whom I have a good relationship. Uh, I don't have that with the rest of them. And I just said to her, oh, what would happen if someone hurt me or someone did something to me? And she was like, well, we would all be there. And I was like, no, you wouldn't. And she was like, no, we would. Because like, even if we don't all get on, we're family. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Oh. And then maybe an hour later, I was like, that's going to be a novel. That's what I have to do. And I'd written another version of People Person before 
the one that, that you see in front of you. Um, and I wasn't vibing with it. I didn't like it at all. And I'd done so much work on it. And I was halfway through the edit of that in lockdown. And I was like, I just don't care about this. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I started writing this this new version of People Person, I could feel so connected to it. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is a sign. This is, you just have to keep going with this one. And I pissed off my editor. I pissed off my other editor. I pissed off my agent. I pissed off everyone. But I was like, but you want me to talk about what I care about and what is real? And it also occurred to me that I hadn't read any read anything about half siblings. Mm-hmm. So many people have them, and it's such a it's such an interesting and delicate and often unsuccessful relationship, I think. Mm-hmm. And I would love for people to be able to talk about those things because I grew up with as 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 I've just said, so many half siblings, and I don't talk to I talk to a fraction of them, and that's really really hard. And it's kind of like okay, well, you know, a lot of my work in some ways is always like I guess Queenie in some way was like fantasizing about who I would be if I didn't have to be sensible I didn't have to be in control all the time and this was like fantasizing about what would happen if like I did have a relationship with my half siblings and I was not I wasn't even necessarily dimple I think that I kind of put myself bits of myself into all of those characters I think I could I could only write them well because I believed in all of them and I believe in all the different bits of them that make up me but it was definitely me kind of exploring that. And then, of course, when it comes to dads, the relationship I have with my dad is, you know, is, is effectively non-existent. Uh, someone asked me at an event yesterday, you know, like, oh, has he said, well done? Has he read the book? And I was like, are you joking? Like, of course, what? That's like, felt, that felt like such a mad question. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about dads and thinking about what it means to people when there is someone in your life who you are always taught by... TV, by other books, by your friends, by other family members that you see, you're taught that this person is meant to love you and meant to care about you and meant to check in and meant to protect you. What does it do when that doesn't happen? What does Mm -hmm. it do to you when that doesn't exist? And what does that do to five people who are very, very different in their ways? And how affecting is it when they are just going through life, not necessarily incomplete, but definitely with questions and definitely understanding at some level that there was rejection there Mm -hmm. and how do they do that and so my whole thing was like these five cannot reject each other I can't let them reject each other the way they've been rejected hi I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in now your next presentation with Canva presentations Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And FrameBridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece so you know exactly what you'll pay up front. 
Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by Framebridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. Framebridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit framebridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. One of the things that I thought was most compelling about the book, most honest and as a writer, just truly audacious is mm-hmm. that we have this, I think, desire, at least I do, to give the reader everything they could possibly want. And then I pull that back and give them about 85 percent, if I could put a number on it, of what they actually want and what they think they need from the book. And toward the end, as the kids have dealt with the primary obstacle, but they're still like, okay, now what do we do? And how do we engage with our father? How do we get him back in our lives? Mm. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the book for people, but you made a really interesting choice where you didn't make the easy choice. How Mm. do you make difficult decisions in your writing? And how do you make those difficult choices where you know that you may not satisfy every reader, but you satisfy the story instead? So actually, it's funny, I did the same thing in in Queenie in a different way. I remember so many people have come up to me to be like, Cassandra should have got what for? I can't believe you let Cassandra get off. And it's like, yeah, but it's, it's good for the story. I don't really care. I think like it took me, I guess, a long time to sit in this in myself. And this was when Queenie was coming out. I'm just thinking about how I like to do things in the world. And I thought, you can't do this for everyone else. And I, of course, like there are there there were 10 versions of people person that could have ended the way that I think would have served everyone. But that didn't serve me as the writer and it didn't serve my story. And it's my job, I think, to be like, what is the story that you want to tell? And you can only tell it convincingly if you tell it in the way that you need to. And so, yes, the ending of that, and actually lots of choices that I made in that were difficult but they were followed because I was like, but that's the thing that's authentic to me and that's what the story is telling me to do. Um, And so I will listen to the story before I listen to anyone else. But when the book comes out, I love hearing from people. I love hearing their quibbles. I love hearing their arguments. Queenie got a lot of shit as a person. And I had to keep saying to people, she's not real. This is a work of fiction. And I wrote her this way because I knew it would, I, I wanted, it's a story, you know, but I think she was so frustrating so to people that people forgot that she wasn't a real person. Um, and it elicited such a passionate response and sometimes quite an angry response. And sometimes people were really being pissed off with me. It's intense. I think there is a space between writing the story and then the story coming out where I'm like, you need to do what you need to do. And then you just deal with everything afterwards. And I really like that. And I really like that. Uh, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I like making people feel things that they wouldn't necessarily feel if unless if I if I'd just given them the story that they'd expect. So there are five siblings: Nikisha, Danny, Lizzie, Prince, and Dimple. Mm. And I noticed that all of them were distinct, which is challenging to do when you have an ensemble. And you want people to understand that these people are connected, but they are also individuals. Mm. And so 
how do you build characters and how did you ensure that they would be distinct characters? So I feel like this is like a, a hack, but I just start with zodiac signs. It's the, it's the easiest thing ever for me. Oh, yes. So I'm just like, who is this person? So Nikisha is an Aries, clearly. Danny is obviously a Gemini. Dimple <laughs> is a Cancer. Lizzie oh, is a Leo. Yes. And um, Prince is a Sagittarius. And then it was like, put those five signs in the room and what's going to happen? And it was just Mm -hmm. the easiest thing. So I had so much fun being like, okay, so the most difficult relationship is going to be, I mean, Dimple and kind of everyone because cancers, I'm a cancer myself. Mm. And I'm so feeling that so many of my relationships were, when I was younger, difficult because I didn't understand why people didn't feel exactly like I did, why they didn't respond exactly like I did, why they weren't quick to emotion like I was. I couldn't get it. And then as I got older, I was like, okay, star signs, think about this stuff. And I started to get really into it. My mum was really into it. And I would always be like, okay, whatever. But then I got older and I was like, oh no, this actually helps me as a framework for people. And so I knew that having Dimple as a cancer her being that central point, those relationships that she was going to have, especially with Lizzie as a Leo, that is going to be very difficult. But mm-hmm. also Nikisha, who would be always telling her what to do. And it's like, why are you telling me what to do and not thinking about my feelings? My feelings are so... And then Prince, who is Sagittarius, and it's like nothing sticks. And her being everything sticks on me. Why does nothing stick on you? And then Danny, who's just like this sort of wide-thinking Gemini, who's really optimistic and not because he's not bogged down by anything, and he's not bogged down by, I guess, his past in particular. And just thinking about how like Dimple and these people, but also the rest of them. And honestly, star signs is just my favorite thing because like I just know what I'm dealing with. And so yeah, (laughs) very simple. And just even down to whether they would talk to each other and the way they would talk amongst themselves, and also the journey of them. So if I take like two characters, Lizzie is a Leo, as I said, she's very upfront. She's going to say things. She's going to call things how she sees them. And, you know, what we learn about her through her life is kind of like, okay, yeah, this is the person that she is, but it's not a surprise. It's not a tell because we know how she's going to operate. But Danny is a lot slower because he's not urgent. He's just kind of like thinking about things and taking the day as it comes. And so as his story is revealed, and it takes a lot of time. It takes time because Danny takes time. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like just thinking about how they would be and how they are telling us who they are just from that standpoint. And so, yeah, I just had a very clear vision of them just with, I will always use Zodiac as my starting point because like, I don't know, it just helps. It just feels like I've great trick. Like I've like tricked everyone. I've never heard that before. <laughs> and really? it makes sense. I mean, that really, like, it really makes sense. I'm a Libra. So, of course, I would think it makes sense. No, I know. Aren't you a triple Libra? I am a, like a quintuple Libra. <laughs> I have all but one of my, like, suns or moons. A couple years ago for my birthday or anniversary, my wife had got me a private reading by Channy Nicholas. Oh, and, my God, what a dream. The dream. Oh, it was so good. Mm-mm. And... The, she just like I was everything was in Libra and I was like yes that tracks seeing how these characters yes come together and when you describe them through the Zodiac it's like yes these I know these people I know them mm-hmm. you mentioned your mother was very into the Zodiac yes what kind of relationship did you have with your mother growing up and and now gosh my mom I really love her she's a Gemini it's difficult 
is difficult because she is like a fucking fairy. Mm-hmm. I'm very far from a fairy. I'm very realistic. Uh, mm. I'm not pessimistic. I don't think I'm very realistic. Uh, and she is optimistic to the point of delusion sometimes. But we get on. We had a difficult. We had a difficult childhood. I would say there was a a stepdad involved. And she just wasn't able to be present in a way that I would have I would have needed from her. But it was okay because my nan kind of swooped in and was like, right, fine, I'll look after you. And other family members swooped in and they were like, right, well, she needs help. And actually a lot of uh, the stuff that we've worked through recently, a lot of therapy, uh, a lot of my stuff has been around, I guess, that acceptance and forgiveness of that. But I've always known that throughout everything, she's a very kind person. Mm-hmm. But I think that her optimism is a thing that kind of gets her carried away and she kind of flips off and she's like, oh, you know, like we'll go to... If I, I remember there were a few years of my life where I was suffering from like, terrible, terrible anxiety. And I'd go some. She'd drag me somewhere. She'd be like, no, you should come. I will stay with you the whole time. We're going to have a nice time. I'll look after you. We'd get in and she would see her friend the second she stepped through the door and run away. And I wouldn't see her for three hours. And so I was always like, oh, okay, that's how it is. But as time has gone on, I don't want to say she's like a friend because I still call her when things are upsetting. Mm-hmm. I will still, that's the person that I want to speak to. And so it's a relationship that I'm really happy that I, I work towards. I don't want to say mending, but I work towards understanding, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so, yeah, she's kind. And that is so underappreciated sometimes. It does seem that way sometimes. And I value kindness probably above all other things because it can do so much. Yeah. And it can go such a long way. You can have other deficiencies, but if you're unkind, yeah, I just don't see a way forward. I agree. Uh, but if you are kind then we could probably work almost anything out. Mm. You've spoken very openly and eloquently about childhood trauma and dealing with anxiety and Mm. also getting healthcare um, through therapy. What prompts you to be open about the kinds of things that we tend to try and keep to ourselves instinctively? Mm. I suffered so much when I was young with being like this sort of strong black woman. And I just wanted someone to be like, I'm not. That's all I wanted. I just wanted one person to be like, I'm not that strong. Um, And I never had that. And I was seeking it for years and years, not in my family, not around my friends, not on social media. Um, And so I made a decision, I guess, when I kind of had any sort of public profile to be someone who was like, I'm not a strong black woman at all. And that's fine because I'm sure there is someone out there who's going to be like, well, great, neither am I. Mm -hmm. And also it's kind of like, this is a very strange, you've seen Eight Mile, I imagine. Yes, I have. And I think like you kind of just like Eminem does at the end, Rabbit, you kind of just got to say the stuff people might say about you up front because like you're just gonna there's nothing I'm ashamed of um you know in my bio it says that I'm the product of an affair that's true and I just there was I had this idea of a journalist kind of being like oh so your your parents were they together and me having to be like oh and maybe someone finding out that you know and I was like no I'm never gonna have any anything that anyone can use against me Mm -hmm. and so I think it's two things it's kind of like I don't know. I think also just like I'm a person in the world. I'm not perfect. I have many flaws. I'm trying to work them out. As we say, I'm trying to be kind as I do it. But there's nothing about myself that I'm ashamed of or embarrassed of. And I don't think anyone should be because like, I honestly think so many of us are just trying to get through the day. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think like this idea that I am strong or that I am impermeable or that I am the best or that I can do everything that other people can't do, it's just not real. And so I mm-hmm. think like just say it because like we're all just figuring it out, you know? And that might we sound are. naive or quite silly, but we just are. Everyone is just trying every day to deal with something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound naive. To my mind, it sounds realistic. Yeah. Uh, because it's the truth. And Sometimes the truth is just plain and simple. You were raised in South London, and you mm-hmm. said that you're going to always live there. Yes. What makes South London home to you, and what holds you to that place? That is a really beautiful question for my heart. South London feels very safe to me. I think because I've been there a lot, but also because I'm quite a sad person, which is fine. And in a way mm-hmm. that I'm cool with that. Like, it's mm-hmm. cool. I can have a laugh and like, I'm funny. But, like, naturally, the emotion is sad. And I've spent a lot of years walking around South London, being sad, listening to music, walking around parks, all times of night, all times of day. And I've always felt very held still, always, by this space that's always looked after me. It feels very consistent. And it is the most consistent thing in my life. I've moved around a lot. I've moved, I worked out that I lived in maybe like, I've lived in like 25 houses when I was like growing up and they were all in South London. And I always felt okay because I knew that I was going to be in this place that I understood. And so for me, it's that, and it's the nostalgia of always walking around this place and always feeling okay and always knowing I was going to be safe. And I always mm-hmm. was, and I hope that I continue to be, but I was, I've always been safe and, and, and held by that particular area, which is very interesting. I don't know if many people have that, but I just, I know it and I long for it, you know? Mm -hmm. Safety, I think, like kindness, can be underrated. Yes. Um, I I think it can be overrated in certain contexts, but I also think, especially for Black women, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it can be incredibly underrated. And when we do find places and spaces that are safe, they are invaluable because there Mm -hmm. are so few of them, quite frankly. Mm. Before you were a writer, you worked in Mm -hmm. publishing quite a lot. And in fact, when I met you, I think you were still at Fourth Estate. Mm -hmm. I know that being Black in publishing in the United States is challenging because there are very few people in publishing editorially, as agents, as marketing executives, which is where you were. How did you navigate publishing as a Black Briton? How did I? How do I answer this question diplomatically? In my first job, I had, and legally, in my first job, I had a really fun time. Fourth Estate was really amazing to me. I was able to start the um, short story prize with The Guardian for underrepresented writers. That was incredible. And that was me being like, I have an idea, I have a plan, and then being like, okay do it, enjoy yourself. You know, if you need us, we're here. You can chat to us. That was incredible. And so I had a really good time there. But I think because I was 25 and I was sort of just like running around drunk all the time, just doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing, that was okay. And and publishing kind of understood me as like a, as a young person. And so most of the seniors would say to me and my, my friend who I worked with at the time, my best friends, they'd be like, oh, hey kids. And that was cool. And then I went into my next job and it was not as, it wasn't good at all. Mm-hmm. It was really, I felt the weight of being the only black woman there. There were many, many incidents that I found very, very tough. And I would have loved to have stayed on 
and carried on working publishing because I know that when you have someone black or someone of colour working somewhere, it makes a massive difference to what is published, even if it's one person, Mm -hmm. because it just takes one person to stand up and be like, I can see how this book would sell. I can see why it's important. But I had to go. I had to go. And for many reasons that basically they paid me off in it. But one day I reckon I'll talk about it and give them their money back. But like, I had to go. I had to leave because I was like, it's killing me. It's killing me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's killing me being here. The weight of that is is hard. And I'm a very resilient person. I always have been. I can do a lot. I can feel a lot and I can cope with it. But that place, I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it out alive. And so I had to go. Mm-hmm. And I think writing a, a novel, I was asked by Human Resources, did you get permission to do that from your boss? And I was like, oh, okay, it begins. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a time. I have to say, every time I talk to a Black person in publishing, I hear mm. a story. And I think I'm never going to hear anything mm. more fucked up than mm. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I talk to someone else and I hear something worse. Yeah. And I think, okay, this is the, this is it. This is the apex. Uh, I'm not going to hear anything worse. Mm-hmm. When you're asked, did you ask for permission to write? That, that harkens back to so many, mm-hmm. so many white supremacist activities like enslavement. Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I laughed. I laughed because it was a joke. And I was met with just a very straight face. And I was like, oh, that's not a joke. You're serious. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, of course not. And at that point, I was so kind of like, oh, should I have? But I was even then, I was like, this isn't right. This That's not right. No, it's not. It's curious to see the ways in which employers tend to think that because we work for them for eight hours a day or so, that they have ownership over all 24 of our daily hours mm-hmm, when mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. is not the case. Absolutely not. Do you think publishing has improved in recent years as we've had more open conversations about diversity, inclusion, representation? I think it has improved. I am hopeful that the the change is here to stay. And I, so a very hopeful part of me genuinely does think it, that is the case because I look around when I go to book events and I see that there are the, the workforce is, is, is way different to it was, to how it was when I started in publishing. And when I started in publishing, which was maybe, let's say, like 10 years ago now, things were in vastly different and for the worse, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I look around and also I see what's being published and I see that the the literary landscape for, for us is, is so much broader and it's so varied and that's what's important because I think that, you know, there was a time when it was like all the slavery books were the thing and then it was like, okay, all the books about like being African in Africa, like nebulous mm-hmm. Africa were the thing. And so now it's like, okay, we do see different stories and different backgrounds and different perspectives So I remember working on a book, Behold the Dreamers, which was by a Cameroonian author. Oh, Mbule. Mbule, yeah. Yeah. Great book. Beautiful book. And I remember Mm -hmm. just the way it was, um, they tried to market it was just like, it was, I think for some reason it was like, talk to like, send it to these Nigerian influencers. And I was like, you don't understand... You know, so it's kind of like you just have to have people who are in there, people who can like pick up on the nuance. I mean, which isn't actually nuanced to us, but you know what I mean? And make sure those things are, are, are correct in the way they go out into the world. And so to answer your question, I think it's 
better and I'm hoping that it's sustainable. I am too. I, I, I think that's the real measure because I'm often asked the question I just asked you and mm. I don't think we have seen improvements that are commensurate with the amount of discussion that there mm-hmm. has been around the issue and the amount of promises publishers have made about addressing the issue. And every time there is a step forward, there's a step back where, for example, senior editors at a major Black imprint are suddenly fired from that Mm -hmm. imprint, which uh, is something that recently happened at Amistad Mm -hmm. at HarperCollins in the U.S. And so I'm always curious as to what it's going to take for sustainable change to happen, which is the real measure. Like, how long can we sustain this where we have more inclusive editorial culture and every other kind of culture within publishing so that people don't think Africa is a country. (laughs) I can't believe sending a Cameroonian author's book to um, some Nigerian influencers. God bless them. But that was like, that was like the whole plan. Like that was, I was like, Oh, okay. Let's, let's get a, let's get a, I was like, let's get a focus group together so I can prove why this is so wrong and yes. so yeah i think you need those people who are going to just be there and be like that doesn't make any sense but again let me show you in a gentle way mm-hmm. why it doesn't make sense it's exhausting i don't i do and i don't miss it mm-hmm. i would go back into it people you ask would. all the time would i, I would huh. i would go back in i would i would go back in i loved marketing so much and i would go back mm-hmm. into that you are a writer now full-time and i'm curious are you working on your next novel uh, I'm not at the moment because I'm show running one of two TV shows that I'm working on. I'm working on a TV show called Champion, mm-hmm. which is a musical, of course. Um, Hello. And I am working on the adaptation of Queenie. And so there is no time for novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The adaptation of Queenie is a fucking headache uh, because adaptations are hell. Because it's just like, you know, why why buy the book if you want to just do your own thing with it? It's interesting. Just get yes. someone to write something different, you know? I do know. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. <laughs> I'm really, And I'm really candid about that. And I don't really care who hears it because it's like, why buy it? Like, just, I don't understand why you would do this. Yes. And so I think I'm going to have to earmark my my time to to get back into novel writing I think end of next year I think I just need Mm -hmm. uh, I need to TV is a really really I feel like I'm trapped in a web you know Mm -hmm. and it's going to take a long time to extract myself from it because you know there are so many moving parts and when you're show running it's like you have to be there all the time you have to be active and engaged and you have to talk to people all the time and you know I just think like when I started writing I never thought I'd end up managing anyone do you know what I mean? You just sit. I do. I you do. You just sit. And then I'm sure running a show to, and right? I'm grateful for the work. As am I. It's not what the dream but was. Do, what, do you sleep? Not enough. <laughs> not enough. Not enough. And, you know, I, my shows have not yet moved into production, which I know is going to amp things up. Oh, yes. Uh, immeasurably. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for the, I, like, I really am grateful for the work, but when I dreamt of being a writer, all I dreamt of was books. And that really would have been enough. Mm, This is not something I ever anticipated. And of course, I do enjoy it. But it's a different beast. You know, book people, I know what to expect from book people, Mm -hmm. for better and worse. And TV people are just buck wild. Yes. 
they're just buck wild. Yes. Yes. They don't care. Nope. They're going to do what they're going to do. And Absolutely. they have, they have the, you know, he who has the most money wins mm-hmm. and they have the most money. So it's very interesting to see what happens with adaptations. Are you involved in, are you also writing the adaptation of Queenie? Uh, I'm writing some of it, but not all of it because, mm-hmm. you know, I think my thing is Queenie came into the world in, with me and I, I put her out there. I was able to be like, this is what this book is about. This is why I care about it. And I think that I've done that work now. And I think that when it's a TV show, it's a different life. It's a different thing. And I would actually be okay to be like, someone else can do that. But there's mm-hmm. a really amazing bunch of writers working on it. And that's been, it's been so fun and collaborative. And that's been one of the best parts of it, sitting mm-hmm. in a room with, with other black people, just sharing our experiences mm-hmm. and really, really and, he's, and men as well, black oh, writers who were like, yeah, I know this and I understand this and, you know, what's the, and ask, who ask questions as well, crucially. But when it comes to to actually writing the thing, I'd like to back up. I'd like to step away from it because mm-hmm. I've done it. I wrote, it's eight years since I started writing her. I don't need to do it again. Mm-hmm. I have one final question, which is a question I like to ask every writer that I Ooh. have the pleasure of speaking with. What do you like most about your writing? That's a lovely question. Do you know what I like most about my writing? I like, in my writing, the way that I speak, I do what I want, and then you just catch it, catch it and take what you want from it. That's what I like. I don't try to write or speak like anyone else. I love that. Thank you so much. Candace Carty-Williams' latest book, Hot Off the Press, is People Person. This is the first time I've hosted Design Matters, but this is the 18th year of the podcast. Both Debbie and I would like to thank you so much for listening this week and every week. And remember, as Debbie tells us, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Roxanne Gay, and Debbie is looking forward to talking to you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.